0: Today we are in 1 Corinthians 7, and uh, I'm going to read a fairly lengthy passage. We're not going to look at all of this uh, in the message this morning, but 1 Corinthians 7. Paul has a lot to say about marriage and the family here, and so I'm going to read this section. So find 1 Corinthians 7 in your Bible, and then let's stand together, honor of the word, let's read it. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own, own body, but the husband does, And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her unbelieving husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O oh wife, whether you will save your husband Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray together. Father, we uh, thank you again for another opportunity that we have to gather corporately in your name to worship you. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to sing your praises. Lord, you are worthy of glory and honor and praise. And so, Lord, we offer our praises up to you this morning with sincere hearts of thankfulness and gratitude. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would uh, challenge us from your word, help us to have the kind of families that you want us to have. Lord, we know that uh, you have designed marriage and the family, uh, that you have created it in such a way that it is to be a blessing. It is the foundation of society. And so, Lord, we know that you have designed it for good. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to follow the instructions given in your words so that we can have the best that you uh, have for us in our marriages, in our homes, in our families, and whatever stage of life we might be in that we can learn and that we can grow in this area. And Lord, we pray this morning as we worship that our hearts would be set on you, and Lord, that uh, we would uh, uh, be open and receptive to all you have for us this morning. We thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes I drive around Parker and I'm just overwhelmed by the number of houses that I see. In some of these subdivisions, there are hundreds of houses. There are a lot of houses, but I wonder how many homes there are. I wonder how many families there are where there is peace and harmony and fulfillment as God desires for the family. I wonder how many marriages there are where there is joy and fulfillment. The truth of the matter is that good, solid, fulfilling marriages and families are becoming more and more rare all the time, even among Christians. Why is that? because we are moving further and further away from following God's principles for our lives. And it is especially important for us to follow God's principles in regard to marriage, because marriage is the basis for every other relationship in the home. And what happens in your marriage affects every other aspect of your life. And we looked at this in Genesis, but when God evaluated man's singleness in the Garden of Eden, He declared that it was not good for the man to be alone. And God understood that man needed another person to complete him and to complement him, and so He solved the problem of man's aloneness by creating the woman from his side ...and brought her to his side. And that was the beginning of marriage. And since that time, there have been countless couples brought together in marriage. From the very beginning, God established marriage, and that became then the foundation of the home. And even though marriage may be on shaky ground in our world today, it will never go out of style because it is the God's ordained foundation of the family. And we may struggle sometimes in the marriage relationship, and there may be many marriages that fail in our day and time, but we will always return to it because God has established it as the most intimate of all relationships and as the building block for society. So if we want to get the most out of our marriage and we want to experience marriage as God originally designed it, then we need to understand God's purpose for which he originally established this relationship. Now let me ask you a question this morning for those of you who are married. Why did you marry the person that you married? And you might respond by saying, well, I don't know, she was good looking. Or, he had a nice car. Or, to get away from my parents. Or, he was funny. Or, she was easy to talk to. Or, he had a good job. And by the way, if you are here this morning and you are single, I would encourage you to find a better reason for getting married. But seriously, why do we get married? Why not stay single? Biblically, it may be God's will for some to remain single, as Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 7. It is good and right for some to remain single, Paul says. But if you get married, what are the reasons that God has for you to become married. And remember he is the one who created marriage to begin with. And may I suggest to you that the reasons that God has for marriage. Are not often the same reasons that many people have for marriage. But we can't take our cues from the world's. We must go to God's word and understand his purpose for marriage. So what I want to do this morning is to look at four biblical reasons for marriage. And this list may not be exhaustive, and there may be some other good reasons, but the Bible does give at least four primary reasons why it is to our advantage and accomplishes God's purpose when we get married. Four reasons for marriage. The first one is purity. Purity. Turn again in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 7. And I want to read those first five verses again. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, apparently Paul had written some questions about this. or uh, The Corinthians, excuse me, had written some questions to Paul about this. It is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, God has created us as sexual creatures. And sometimes when I see all the ways in which our world seems to be so preoccupied with sex, it makes me wonder why God made us so sexually driven. But God is the one who created sexuality. And he intends for that to become a powerful bond of intimacy when it is kept in the proper boundary of marriage. So Paul tells us here that marriage is given by God for the purpose, first of all, of preventing sexual immorality. Verse 1 is very clear. It means, men, keep your hands off of women sexually except for your own wife, and vice versa. But verses 3 through 5 teach that it is the exact opposite for a spouse. The sexual relationship between a husband and wife is created by God to be a beautiful, powerful, bonding intimacy. But it is never intended to be out of the bonds of marriage. Never. And by the way, there's no wiggle room at all here biblically in regard to this teaching. You know there are some gray areas when it comes to certain acts of uh, aspects of morality and ethics. This is not one of them. This one is crystal clear. The Bible is not always clear on some issues, but there is absolutely no doubt on this one. Both adultery and fornication are absolutely condemned in the Scripture. And you know, we live in a day when Christians, even Christians, do not always know what the bible teaches. And even Christians in our day are not always clear on what God declares to be sin. And I'm always amazed when I meet people who claim to be Christians and yet they see nothing at all wrong with two unmarried people living together. They they don't understand what the bible has to say. But the bible's clear on this. And Paul said this is one of the reasons why God established marriage. He wants us to remain pure sexually. He doesn't want believers to fall into the sin of sexual immorality. And by the way, the word that Paul uses for fornication in the King James or immoralities in the New American Standard in verse 2 is the word porneia. It means illicit sexual intercourse of any kind. It includes adultery, fornication, homosexuality, lesbianism, intercourse with animals, etc. That is straight from Strong's encyclopedic concordance. Turn with me to Proverbs 5 for a moment. Proverbs 5, and let's read verses 15 through 20. Drink water from your own cistern, and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times, be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? These, of course, are figures of speech. Using the analogy of water, Solomon warns against sexual immorality and the righteous fulfillment of sexual fidelity in marriage. The author of Hebrews wrote, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. You say, Pastor, are you sure that sexual intercourse outside of marriage is sin? Absolutely sure. Isn't it clear? Isn't it absolutely clear? There's no doubt about it. Tim Chalice writes, Adultery is a serious matter. At least it is a serious matter in the mind and heart of God who created sex and marriage and who puts wise boundaries on them both. Why is adultery such a serious sin? In his book, Married for God, Christopher Ash provides six reasons why adultery is so serious. First, adultery is a turning away of a promise from a promise. It is the forsaking of the marriage vows. At its heart, adultery is a forsaking of promises made in the presence of God, and in that way is a turning away from God himself. Second, Adultery leads the adulterer from security to chaos. By its very nature, adultery leads the adulterer into a life of torn loyalties. Ash explains that once the promise is broken, the barrier is breached, the secure wall of marriage is torn down, an adulterer finds he or she has not, after all, exchanged one secure place, his marriage, for another secure place, his new relationship with his mistress. That is the illusion, but he will quickly discover that he has entered into a world of insecurity and divided loyalties. He enters into the sphere of a divided life. A divided family, divided memories, and the security of the marriage is gone. He moves into the realm of shifting sand morally. As Ash writes, adulterers soon find they've entered a world in which unfaithfulness is the norm. After all, if one set of vows can be broken, why not another? And he quickly discovers the old analogy is true. To the adulterer, the the grass seems so much greener on the other side of the fence, but it turns out it's not nearly as green as it looks. The adulterer's sin leads him away from security and stability and into disorder and chaos. Thirdly, adultery adultery is secretive and dishonest. It has to be because no one wants to trumpet the breaking of a promise. Adultery loves the darkness. It flees the light. As long as possible, it wants the sin to remain a secret. News of a marriage is broadcast with joyful announcement But the shame of adultery leaks out by rumor. And that alone should tell us what is at the heart of adultery. Because sin loves darkness while righteousness loves the light. Fourth, adultery destroys the adulterer. It undermines character and integrity. Ash writes, like all secret sin, it eats away, like some noxious chemical, at the integrity of the one who commits it. He says, the moment any of us drive a wedge between what we say we are publicly and what we actually are privately, we injure ourselves at the deepest possible level. Of course, that is the way it always is with sin. It promises so much and delivers so little. It promises freedom, but it delivers bondage. It promises fulfillment, but delivers emptiness. It promises pleasure, but delivers guilt. Fifth, adultery damages society. It damages society. Ash says, Each act of adultery is like a wrecker's ball taking a swing at the secure walls of the social fabric of society. And you know, we love to think that our sins only affect us. But the truth of the matter is, our sin always goes way beyond just us. It carries consequences for many, many others. And this leads us to the final reason adultery is so serious. It hurts children deeply. Children are the innocent victims of adultery, especially when it leads to divorce. You know, children thrive where there is structure and stability. But adultery brings chaos and instability into their worlds. It creates conflict with their parents and it results in disharmony and instability that can literally destroy their lives and so for all these reasons the bible strongly warns against adultery it says simply you shall not commit adultery in the ten commandments it says can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her will not go unpunished. That's Proverbs six, twenty seven to twenty nine. It says the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself is the one who does it. That's Proverbs 6.32. It says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. God will judge. Marriage is to be a pure relationship. It is a holy relationship before God because He has declared that the two have become one flesh. So don't ever do anything to defile that relationship sexually. Purity is one reason for marriage. But there's a second reason, and that is permanence. Permanence. Turn with me to Matthew 19. Matthew 19. Matthew 19:5. 19, I referred to this a moment ago, but there is a verse that you... Here in almost every wedding. And that's this verse. The context is Jesus' answer to the Pharisees, who had a very liberal view of divorce. And they have asked him about this issue of divorce. And verse 5 is part of his answer. In fact, go back to verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read... That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, we know that part, but notice verse 6. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let no man separate. Why? Because it is God who has made them one flesh. It is God Himself who has joined them together as husband and wife. That's why the marriage relationship is to be permanent. Listen, God always, from the beginning, has viewed marriage as a permanent relationship. And the part about A man leaving his father and cleaving to his wife and becoming one flesh. All of that is from Genesis 2.24. All the way back in the very beginning of creation, and we saw that. But what is the problem in our day and time? The problem is that people no longer see marriage as permanent. And many couples enter into marriage thinking that if it doesn't work out, they'll get a divorce. And, you know, we Americans always have to have a way out built into everything we do. We have insurance for everything that we own, so if something happens to it, we can get it replaced. We have money-back guarantees for everything we buy, so that if something happens to it, we can return it for a refund. We always have to have some kind of contingency plan in case something goes wrong. So is it any wonder that we would approach marriage in the very same way? People are doing all these prenuptial agreements so that they will be protected when the divorce occurs. But folks, all that is a hundred miles away from God's design. For two Christians, divorce should never even be considered. And you know, I counsel couples who come in contemplating marriage to just take the word divorce completely out of their vocabulary. Don't ever threaten it. Don't even talk about it because you don't have that option. And that's not saying that there won't be conflict in your marriage. Of course there will be. No two people can live together for very long without having some kind of conflict. And you're going to have conflict in your marriage. Someone once said, if two people agree on every everything, one of them is unnecessary. That's true, is it not? That's why God made us different, and that's why there's going to be conflict. Someone else also said, the reason God has allowed for divorce is to prevent murder. And perhaps that's true as well. There's no doubt there will be conflict in your marriage. But the question is, are you learning how to deal with conflict in a godly way? Are you committed to working out those differences no matter what? Divorce is never an option for two believers. Jesus told the Pharisees that the only reason God had allowed divorce in the first place was because they had hard hearts and because they were being disobedient to the Lord. But God's design from the very beginning has been one woman and one man united together in marriage for life. Now, there may be some who don't like that. And almost anyone who gets a divorce justifies it in some way. But God wants you To stay committed to your spouse for your entire life. That is God's design. Now, of course, I need to hasten to say, this is God's ideal, but God's ideal is not always followed. And that's why we see biblical principles for divorce and remarriage given in Scripture, and we're going to see those in another message. And by the way, before I move on, let me just say, I need to say, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And it is not something that will keep you bound into a perpetual state of guilt in the eyes of God. So we need to be careful not to go the other direction. But if you have been a part of an unbiblical divorce... Confess it to God as sin and ask Him to forgive you, and He will restore you. But don't go back into another relationship and sin all over again. Don't start that cycle again. Do it God's way. And we're going to look at this more thoroughly in another message. But for today, there is a third reason for marriage that we see in Scripture and that is power, power. One of the greatest powers on this earth is the power of a married couple who are living together for the Lord. And we see this in a general sense in the book of Ecclesiastes. So turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 for just a moment. Ecclesiastes 4. Notice first of all verse 9 Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. This is describing the power of mutual effort. Look at verse 10. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. This is talking about mutual support. Verse 11. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Here we have mutual encouragement. And then verse 12, if anyone can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. Mutual strength. Now, this can be applied to the general principle of the power of two, but it especially applies in marriage. There is great power in the union of two lives together. And that's one reason why God has ordained marriage. Now we've already seen this in Genesis chapter 2. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2.22 that when he made the woman, he fashioned her. And as I pointed out, the Hebrew word for fashioned there is a word that means to rebuild in such a way as to cause to flourish. The man flourished as a result of the woman being made by God, but the relationship was intended by God to be one that flourishes. In other words, the man is better because of the woman, and the woman is better because of the man. They complement each other, and they help complete one another. God intends for marriage to enhance our lives. And when God said in Genesis 2.18, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. He did not, of course, mean that the woman was to be a gopher or a servant, but he meant that she would be the one who would complete him and fulfill him. This is saying that the man would be better off because of his wife. And really, they are both to complement one another. But the point here is that there is great power in the union of two lives together in marriage. And this brings us to the final reason for marriage, which is priority. Priority. Do you know what the priority of marriage is? It is not to meet each other's needs, as important as that is. It's not the raising of children, as important as that is. The priority of marriage is to bring glory and honor to God and to be more effective together as you serve Him. That is the primary purpose of marriage Now, there are a lot of benefits to a good marriage. But the greatest purpose for marriage is not found within the marriage itself. I believe that the main reason God established marriage is because two believers united together are many times stronger and more effective for the kingdom of God. One Christian by himself may be weak, But when he is married to another believer, he can become stronger. Of course, the opposite of that that can occur if he marries an unbeliever. But I think we have a good example of this in the story of Aquila and Priscilla in Acts chapter 17 and 18. If you read Acts 17 and 18, you will see that this couple was very effective for the Lord as they worked together as a team turn with me to acts 18 for just a moment acts 18 and look with me at verse 1 after these things paul departed from athens and came to corinth and found a certain jew named aquila born in pontus lately come from italy with his wife priscilla Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and uh, wrought for their occupation. They were tent makers, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Here we're introduced to them. And we see where they teamed up with Paul because they were both tent makers. But God used them in the synagogue in Corinth to persuade many Jews and Gentiles concerning Christ. Drop down to verse 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord knowing only the baptism of John. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Now, we don't know exactly what Priscilla's role was in all of this, but the Bible seems to indicate here that they did this together as a team. They were both involved in helping Apollos understand the rest of the story. And we know that Apollos went on to become a very powerful preacher and evangelist in the early church. Some even believe that it was Apollos who wrote the book of Hebrews, although we can't say that for sure. But this couple stands out to us today as an example of a marriage that reaches far beyond itself into the lives of others. And like us, Aquila and Priscilla had the option of hiding behind locked doors and leading very private lives. But they chose instead a different lifestyle. They were not only accountable to God and to each other, they also made themselves available to help others. They were more effective for God and for the work of His kingdom together than they would have been apart. That's the idea. That's the main reason for marriage. It's the priority of marriage. Listen... Marriage isn't just about the two of you. It's for the benefit of the people of God and even those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And when two Christians get married, they really shouldn't be thinking, great, here's a person who can meet my needs, or now I can be the king of my castle, or what am I going to get out of this deal? They shouldn't be thinking that way. Instead, they should be thinking... This marriage is something that can be more effective for the work of the Lord and will bring greater glory to God. Now you say, okay, Pastor, suppose we want to be like Aquila and Priscilla. What do we need to do? Let me suggest, suggest very quickly four applications. Number one, give up. Generosity, availability and a strong, successful ministry are only possible when you give up your tight hold on your personal privacy. The selfish attitude of me, mine, and more can never be part of this lifestyle. Secondly, reach out. There are plenty of people around who need what only you can give. Find those around you who are in need and reach out to them and make a difference in their lives. And this will no doubt take some sacrifice on your part, but it will be worth it in the long run. Thirdly, take in. Don't close your door. Instead, invite people into your life and share with them from your abundance. Use your home. As a regular place of ministry, practice hospitality. And then, fourthly, start now. The time will never be more perfect than right now. Sure, there are going to be some reasons that you're going to say, Well, you know, Pastor, now's not a good time. But you'll never do it if you keep putting it off. There will never be an ideal time. Just decide you're going to do it, and you're going to do it now. what about your marriage today? Is it all about God's purposes? It should be. This is God's design for your marriage. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning you'll help us to have marriages that honor you, marriages that please you, marriages that are... All about what you want us to accomplish, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to see marriage from a different perspective, from your perspective today, and Lord, that uh, we would know that you have a good design. It is what you have created. So, Lord, help us to protect our marriages, that we won't become involved in sexual immorality in any way. That we would, we would have. Uh, the right goals the right priorities in our marriages and lord we pray that as we seek to do that that you would bless and help us lord we ask this morning that if there's anyone here that maybe does not know christ as lord and savior lord we ask that you will convict their hearts help them to understand the gospel and to come to know you as always give that opportunity for people to respond. Lord, we pray that all of us as believers that we would would be about your work, that we would be about your business, that we would be uh, redeeming the time. Uh, Lord, we know the days are evil, and we know that your coming is near, and so, Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to be diligent in redeeming the time. So, Lord, we pray today that you would do a work in our hearts, and we ask this in Christ's name.